Hey friends, thank you for joining Christ Church Online and checking out this week's message. The Reverend Dr. John Guest brings our evidence series to a close as he discusses evidence that demands an action. If you would like to connect with us, you can do so through our website, which is ccgf.org, or you can find us online at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the handle at ccgf01. Now, here is Pastor John with this week's message. Thank you for listening. I don't know about you, but I need these Sunday mornings. Isn't it great just to stop whatever else is going on and be here together and with Jesus, this kind of worship, and be with him, with Jesus. You know, we're still in that season of Easter. It didn't just ride off into some kind of sunset. And last week we were considering together right here evidence that demands a verdict. And we looked at the intellectual evidence. And I'd love to go over it again, but time doesn't allow it. Suffice it to say a couple of things. Number one, there is more evidence for Jesus and his death and resurrection than there is for Julius Caesar. More ancient documentation more documentation, both biblical and extra-biblical, outside the Bible boundaries. That's number one. Number two, outside of the resurrection, and this is stunning because most of us would never think this. We all know Jesus died on a cross. I wasn't raised to go to church in England, but I knew Jesus died on a cross. You couldn't miss that. There were churches everywhere and crosses and or crucifixes. And people wore crosses. And you knew it was about Jesus. But I'll tell you this. Outside of Jesus walking from the grave alive, you would never know that he had been crucified. You ponder that. Thousands were crucified by the Romans. It's a way they kept order. Nobody wanted to die up on one of those crosses lining a highway somewhere. You wouldn't even know about crucifixion unless you were a real student of Roman history or you know about Jesus, which most of us do. But outside of his walking from the grave alive, he would just be another dead no-name along with all the other no-names executed by the Romans. Jesus is alive. And the evidence for that is overwhelming. But as a partner to that thought, we're looking at this morning evidence that demands action. The verdict that the evidence demands in the first place is our faith, that we respond not just emotionally, but intellectually to give ourselves to Jesus. He's alive here, and we can respond to him, just as we've been singing and worshipping. But what do we do with that? To have that translated into action. Now we were looking at a passage in the Bible last week from a letter to the Corinthians written by Paul, the evangelist and apostle. And chapter 15 spoke about some of this evidence, startling evidence. And the last piece of the evidence that he mentions is this, that he, Saul of Tarsus, as his name was, changed to Paul, 
Saul met Jesus and became an ardent, committed, all the chips in, flat out follower of Jesus. And along the way, he was out there preaching and evangelizing. That's how we got this letter to a church in a place called Philippi, which was a magnificent city. The ruins there are magnificent. I've been there. And it's on the Roman road from the Middle East back to Italy. Very famous road that the Romans built. And if you were a citizen of Philippi, you actually had Roman citizenship. Great privilege. A sought-after privilege. Wasn't just like turning up. It was an immense privilege. And Paul went to Rome, ultimately, to die. But on his way around all these places that he was preaching, he ended up creating fellowships that we now call churches or gatherings. And so he sends this letter back. Listen to these words again. Here he says to the people at Philippi, where he had preached, let me just fill in the blanks, where people had become believers, where he ends up being flogged and imprisoned, and where the jailer in that event, because of an earthquake, ends up becoming a believer. It's all big stuff. That all happened. He moved on. Saul of Tarsus, now Paul. And so he writes this letter. And this is what he writes back to them. Whatever was to my profit, that is to my gain, that was something I would love to have hung on to, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, my translation says rubbish, on the screen you saw the word garbage. In the original language, believe me, the real word is thesis. And you can insert your little word for thesis. He considered it all. Thesis. Rubbish. Garbage. For the, for the very cause of knowing and gaining Jesus and being found in him. Now when we talk about action that demands... Excuse me. Evidence that demands action. The first action that's really demanded is an interior action within your own soul and spirit. That's what Paul is describing here. His internal commitment to Jesus. And I want to take you back to the beginning of that. We were talking in one of the songs that we've just had sung and been a part of about going back to the beginning. I love to go back to those beginnings in my life. I did so last week. To, to talk about myself becoming a believer. 
It's still like yesterday, fresh and amazingly wonderful to me. Listen to how it was with Saul of Tarsus. You've got to get the picture here that when he's speaking, and I'm reading from the Acts of the Apostles, like a history of the early church, I'm speaking about Saul, then Paul, same guy, at the end of all his ministry. So he's done all his preaching. What's amazing when I tell you what I'm reading here is he ends up in jail that very day after this speech. The people go nuts with anger at him. He's in Jerusalem. And he never, ever gets out of prison until he is executed in Rome. That is, he is in custody, whether in Jerusalem, Caesarea, which is north of Jerusalem and up the coast of the Mediterranean, or in Rome. And finally, beheaded with the sword in Rome. I've been to the church there in Rome, named after him, where they believe they have his remnants in a casket. I've knelt there before those remnants. Not because they're his remnants, but because of the memory of him and how much we owe to him and how amazing was his life. Most of the New Testament written by him. Earlier in this uh, conversation, he says he worked harder than all the other apostles, all the other witnesses. And yet he said, it wasn't I, but the grace of God at work in me. God working in me so that he paid a price that is almost unimaginable with his brilliant life. So let me read the beginning of it as he describes it to this Jewish crowd. He says, I am a Jew. He's identifying with them. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that's in Jerusalem, under Gamaliel, that's like going to Oxford University or Princeton. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. That's all their religious rules and theology and regulations. And was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way, that is, the Jesus way, the Christians. Persecuted them to their death, arresting both men and women. And if you can imagine this, throwing them women as well, into prison. Also, the high priests and all the counts here here in Jerusalem, that is, can testify. I even obtained letters from them to go to Damascus and went there to bring these people, these religious Christian believers in the Messiah, as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. But about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, 
Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. The answer I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. And with this next statement of Paul, some have described it as the reason why he ended up being such a great and amazing man of God and follower of Jesus and exponent of the Christian faith. He said this, What shall I do? Lord, what shall I do? To which Jesus said, and this is about five years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, remember, get up, said the Lord, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been assigned for you to do. That was the beginning. And here is Paul at the end of his ministry, other than what he got done in jail or in incarceration, like writing letters, like these letters that we consider today. That was the end of it all. But at the end of it all, he's talking about the beginning of it all. Because at that beginning, in meeting Jesus alive, He said, what do you want me to do? Get up, go to Damascus, and you'll be told what your assignment is. And he was ever amazingly, boldly, with the kind of guts that I wish we all had, true to that assignment. What we're considering together here is what we call radical Radical assignment, radical commitment, a radical response. Some of you probably know that the word radical comes from the Latin radex. The word radex means at the root, the root. Radical means as from the root. In other words, your whole life, all that it becomes, all that it produces, flows from that root, that radical, radical relationship to Jesus in this case. What we're talking about here is absolutely at the root of who we consider ourselves to be, so that in effect... In coming to Jesus, we have a re-identification of ourselves. A kind of metamorphosis more radical than a caterpillar going through the chrysalis stage to becoming a butterfly. We become absolutely transformed. So it is Paul who writes, if anyone is in Jesus... He is a new creation, radically, like a different person. And for us, for you and me, to see ourselves 
as we are seen by the Lord once we join ourselves to him in faith. What we tend to do is still see ourselves somewhat as the old self with Jesus tagged in to sort of help us get some things straight. What God sees is Christ coming into us, a living Jesus. It's because he is alive. The living Jesus comes into us and we are transformed. We become something absolutely which we were not. Intimate, personal children that we can call God, Daddy, like an intimate member of God's family. As the Bible says, we become co-heirs with Jesus of all that the Father has for us with Jesus. We are radically at the root transformed. So Paul, in that state, gladly counts everything as loss for the sake of gaining Christ and being found in him. So here is the central statement that goes with this first internal action of ours in coming to Christ and being coming his. Who you are is determined by whose you are. Who you are is determined by whose you are. And in Christ, belonging to him, joined to him, we become radically transformed. I would love as we make this known together for you to walk out of here and never let the devil tell you again that you are feces, that you're trash, that you are rubbish, that you're just living with all the garbage and messed upness of whatever your life has been, your family has been, your track record of being, has been, who you have tended to see yourself. To see yourself as God sees you in Christ, radically transformed. And then begin to live up to that and live into that and claim that, which means a whole lot of other action. The second thereby is the eternal, excuse me, the external action. What I've just described is internal. It's what goes on within you, how you see yourself, who you are. But who you see yourself to be determines what you give yourself to do. And the action that God absolutely has set out there for us is described in that passage that we had read. Uh, Actually, we didn't cover this, so let me just cover this piece. The resurrection of Jesus. And in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, to cut to the heart of it, this is what he says. The living Jesus, speaking again to his immediate followers. It says, he opened up their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them that it was written, the Christ, the Messiah, will suffer, and he's talking about the Old Testament prophecies, another evidence, by the way, of Jesus being the real deal. And here is Jesus teaching from those Old Testament prophecies and words, this statement, that the Messiah will suffer 
will rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city, that's Jerusalem, until you have been clothed with power from on high. A few weeks down the road, we're going to be celebrating that. The coming of the Holy Spirit to baptize the church in power to be preachers of the gospel to the nations, to be witnesses to Christ wherever we go. Mark's gospel talks about preaching the gospel to all nations. Matthew's gospel at the end talks about making disciples of all nations. Here in Luke's gospel, speaking about the preaching of the gospel to the nations and our being witnesses so that the resurrected Jesus said before he went home to glory that they, the followers of Jesus, which means us today, will be witnesses. We will tell what God has done. That's a massive action. The very fact that Jesus came and did all that he did, dying on the cross, what he suffered, what he taught, being resurrected from the dead, ascending to glory to be enthroned, the Holy Spirit coming and baptizing the church with power to get on with the gospel, to preach it, to get it out to the nations, and ordinary folks just like you and me being witnesses to that. A witness, in other words, I know about that. That's happened to me. Let me tell you about it. And what's a miracle to me? Because this is that metamorphosis. I know I told you last week that when I followed Jesus, made the commitment, listening to Billy Graham, an American preaching in England, in London, where I was going to school to be an engineer. I heard Billy, and I surrendered my life to Jesus. One of the things that was amazing is that without having a Bible, knowing what I'm teaching you right now out of the Bible, I felt intuitively within me what the Bible is describing. I went home, I went up to my mother's bedroom, I was 18 at the time, and I said, hey, I asked Jesus into my life tonight. She hadn't a clue what I was talking about. But she knew enough to know that there wasn't anything she was interested in and kind of stiffened up on that. That I had become a Christian, a Christian into Christ. I wanted my brothers to know, my friends to know. And let me just close with this. That's something by which God inspires, if we are that new person, if we've been through that metamorphosis spiritually, born again, made new, a new creation, and we see ourselves that way, and we have the joy of forgiveness, and the absolute ecstasy of his presence in us, and the knowledge that our lives count for something, and that he is directing our lives, and we're willing to take the risk of really following and doing what he's talking about.
that that becomes the intuitive, now you know from God's word, which most of us do anyway, our submissive desire to please him, be about the Father's business, and share what God has done for us, to be those witnesses, to be the communicators of that good, good, good news. Now, let me tell you just about one young man. He was my neighbor growing up. I don't remember a time as a child that this guy, he was about a year younger than me, was not my neighbor. We did everything together. We learned to fish together. We got up to mischief together, went shoplifting together, talked about which girls gave and which girls didn't together. We were dirty-minded little boys young men. I later, I'm going to take about five minutes to tell this whole story, but I'll go to the end of it. Right now, I'll go to the end of it. About a month ago, I get an email from Australia where this guy, Lionel Fort, that's his name, is living with his wife, and family. So bear in mind, we've lived a lifetime since I knew him in Oxford, where I was growing up at the time. But after I came to know Jesus, I ended up finishing my engineering and becoming a minister, Church of England minister. And one summer, I get the opportunity to go and spend a couple of weeks at a resort on the west coast of England, in the home of the minister there, in exchange for preaching for him a couple of Sundays. Well, I was a single guy. So I needed some kind of friendship. And I called up this guy, Lionel. I said, how would you like to come with your wife and little boy at that time, David, and have a free vacation on me here at this resort. Well, they liked that idea. They drove down together and spent a week with me in this house. I wanted them to be there Sunday to hear me preach. And that's what happened. They came to hear me preach, driving from the church back to the house where we were staying. Lionel says to me, I can hear the conversation right now. I'm in the front seat. He's in the driver's seat. We're driving. He said, how on earth did you become a minister? (laughs) I mean, how did this happen? And I told him that I was doing well. I mean, I was fairly cool. I was a good athlete. He knew my life. I said, but there was always this emptiness in me, this space in me. It didn't all add up to much when you get down to it on this, all the stuff I had, what I had going for me. He said, John, I've got the same problem. He said, I'm married. I'm buying a house. I've got a good job. I've got this car. I've got a son. He said, and it's like there's a huge vacuum in my life. Well, that became the beginning of Lionel's coming to faith. And there was a day in a service to which I took him and his wife and little boy 
where the preacher was going to ask for a commitment and for them to come forward, as Billy Graham did to me, and ask them to make a commitment. I took the lad out and walked him around town because he wasn't going to put up with a, a worship service. It wasn't like this service. More traditional. More like church. The other kind of church. So I walked little David, maybe about, you know, five, six years of age, walk him around. About the time I knew the preacher was going to finish up and invite people to come and make a commitment, I stood at the back, center aisle, at this auditorium, which was not church, Colston Hall, which was a great theater hall in Bristol, England, which is where I was pastoring at the time. And I stood at the back with little David People are singing a hymn and suddenly the pastor makes the preacher a call to commitment and Lionel and his wife Janet get out of their pew about halfway back and walk down the center aisle. David thinks that they're leaving. He tears himself out of my hand and goes running down that aisle in this theater about the time his mum and dad got to the front and a lot of other people there and tugged on her skirt. And she looks around. It's her son. She picks him up. And there was a brand new family. Little David, when they came back by way of my house some months later, instead of singing, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're singing same raucous voice. Jesus loves me, this I know. Because the Bible tells me so. Yes. A new family. Can you imagine something like, pick a number, 60 years? 55 years ago, they came to know Christ. They've been in Australia forever. He talks like an Aussie now. He's a kind of crocodile dundee, you know what I mean. And he's still loving Jesus. And we talk about meeting up in England this coming June, next month. Do you know where that started? With me giving my life to Jesus and the spirit of Jesus so transforming me, I want my friend Lionel to know about it. And I go through all those gyrations of a vacation, his coming etc. And they're coming to know Jesus. Boys and girls, you've got people in your life who need that. And you are the vehicle. That's the name of the game. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the action that you call for. Both within our hearts to just give it all over to you, And then with our lives to live it out for you. That other people would come to know you. Just like we know you. So may the evidence of you being alive and in our lives lead to that kind of action. So that others might enjoy you. And have a home in heaven prepared for them by you because of what you have done in us and intend to do with them through us. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.